You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, the first of the new year, we'll be having a look at some predictions for the next 12 months. First, some seasonal cheer from the International Monetary Fund. Second, an interesting take on events from an unexpected source, BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. And finally, the world's billionaires lost $2 trillion last year. So what's going on? First up, we turn to everyone's second favourite Bretton Woods institution, the International Monetary Fund, which has been warning of recession across the globe next year, singling out the EU, the US and China in particular, although take it as read that Britain will be tagging along with that unhappy trio. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva told CBS News that this year will be tougher than the one we just had. Happily stopping just short of the full Enver Hodger, this year will be harder than last year. On the other hand, it will be easier than next year, the eccentric Albanian dictator told his country for New Year 1967. But Georgieva's message isn't much better. Although two-thirds of the world won't, if the IMF reckons, technically be in recession, she says it would feel like recession for hundreds of millions of people. Combined with rising prices across the globe and the rising cost of debt as interest rates also increase, the misery is likely to be deep and widespread. But what's stuck out in the IMS forecast, otherwise much the same story as we've heard all year from actually many different sources, there's nobody really with a a good thing to say about the world economy right now, is that the fund think that China's growth is going to lag behind the global economies for the first time in four decades. This will be quite the transitional moment. In the last major recession, after the financial crisis of 2008, it was China's growth and the determined programme of debt-funded investment that the government pushed through, building things like China's impressive high-speed rail network, most of which has been constructed in the years since 2008, in fact almost all of it has been built since then, that helped set a floor to the general collapse of the world economy. China carried the rest of the world at that point. It meant that the recession that we did have, here and everywhere else, except China and a few other places, wasn't quite as bad as it could have been. This time round, with China whacked by a combination of zero COVID and then the COVID surge after ending zero COVID and then the general difficulties of navigating a smooth transition from an economy driven by exports, which is what China has been really for 40 years, to one driven by domestic consumption, the risks of what looks like a huge property bubble that could burst. All of this stacked together means that China is likely to become a drag on global growth and in the IMS view, with the US running out further in front. Now, forecasts can be wrong, and economic forecasts especially so. And forecasts are always political, which is worth remembering when people come up with these things. It may be no great surprise that the Washington-based IMF is talking down China's prospects in the 18 months after Georgieva herself was criticised, in the US in particular, for being allegedly too close to Beijing. But this forecast is a ring of truth. The exit from zero COVID was always likely to be difficult. And it's another reminder that nearly three years after SARS-CoV-2 was first identified, we're still living under the shadow of the virus. On to the next story. If China is no longer the motor of the world economy, we may need a more dramatic rethink about what's happening to the globe. One suggestion has come from a perhaps surprising source, BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, overseeing $10 trillion in assets across the globe on behalf of their clients. 
Now, BlackRock make their money mostly from charging management fees to those clients. These people actually own the assets, and those clients include pension funds, insurance companies, central banks, and inevitably, because this is the world we live in, high-net-worth individuals, so-called. Rich people. Adrian Buller, Chris Hayes, and Matt Lawrence from the Commonwealth Think Tank have written recently on the huge power BlackRock and other asset managers now exercise, so much so that the three researchers have described what we live under as asset manager capitalism, a capitalism that is shaped and led by the activities of institutions like BlackRock. People might also remember BlackRock hired former Chancellor George Osborne in one of his five or six or seven jobs after leaving office, paying £650,000 a year for one day's work a week. And truly, we are all in this together, as he would say. His former advisor and one of the primary architects of austerity, Rupert Harrison, still actually works at BlackRock today. So the company is a pillar of global capitalism, uh, a rock-solid, so to speak, prop for the system, well-connected, influential and profitable. But what caught my eye were their predictions for the coming year in their Global Outlook 2023. BlackRock argues for something quite distinctive to much of the mainstream commentary and mainstream assumptions about where the world is going. They write that the Great Moderation, the four-decade period of largely stable activity and inflation, is behind us. We are, instead, entering a new period of increased risk and uncertainty, defined by the coming recession, the one we're hitting this year, they see it as unavoidable, and much higher inflation. The world is now, I quote, shaped by a supply that involves brutal trades-off. In other words, the world economy is less effective at supplying goods and services than it was. The after-effects of the pandemic have caused supply chain problems, as we all know. But BlackRock also think that an ageing population means basically fewer workers pushing up the cost of labour. Bad for capital, could be good for labour. And that geopolitical tensions will disrupt global supply chains further. And that the shift to net zero will involve demand and supply mismatches put all this together and BlackRock think inflation will only come down to the 2% level we've got used to in the last maybe two decades or so, if central banks are prepared to, and I quote, crush their economies into severe recession. Now, since central banks won't do that, BlackRock say, and I think they're probably right, inflation will stay much higher than we are used to, combined with this miserable recession over the next year or so. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because it's close to the arguments I and others have been putting about the major shift in the world economy over the last 18 months or so. BlackRock call this a new regime in the economy, that in place of low inflation and relative stability, the world is now going to have much higher inflation, much more instability, and notably higher interest rates. The economic mainstream don't think like this as yet. We're trapped instead with central banks that still think pushing up interest rates to induce a recession is a smart way to bring inflation down. We have governments committed to holding down wages and salaries while allowing profits to explode, like we've seen in Britain over the last year. The working assumption for governments and central banks across the world is that at some point soon, who knows when, everything will get back to normal, either pre-pandemic normality or sometimes even the pre-2008 normality. The same belief in this imminent return to the pre-pandemic normality we all knew and loved is reinforced by the media and, unfortunately, by the main opposition party in Britain. So it's interesting to see a major institution of capitalism saying something very different. It might, potentially, be amongst the first signs of a broader shift in how those major institutions in the Western economies view the world. BlackRock, in their analysis, miss out the longer-term effects of COVID, both in terms of the impact on healthcare and, as we're seeing, uh, in continuing waves of infections. They miss, critically, the wider ecological impacts of climate change and biodiversity loss and resource depletion, effects that are not going to be unwound. And, obviously, they miss the extreme profits that shortages over the last year have generated for a few multinationals, like those supplying oil and gas. 
It's the last bit that's critical. A more unstable world affects everyone, but it'll affect everyone differently. For most of us, on the wrong side of food price hikes and extreme weather, the future isn't great. But for the lucky few, shortages have been turned through price rises into massive profits. This is an example of what BlackRock called a brutal trade-off in the new regime. Falling living standards for the many, becoming profits for the few. The critical issue for the rest of us is flipping that trade-off back in the other direction. Rising wages for the many and falling profits for the few. And now our final story. I've not covered the tech economy yet in any detail on the podcast, and this is despite the ubiquitous presence in headlines of Twitter's new chief executive over the last six weeks or so. Elon Musk's personal wealth has fallen, it's reported, by $115 billion over the last year, driven by a 70% decline in Tesla's share price, a truly tragic state of affairs for everyone. However, this isn't only his own personal idiosyncrasies, let's call him that as a chief executive officer, but it's a general problem for the global billionaire class, who have seen, again it's reported this week, their collective wealth fall by $2 trillion over the last year. I try to end these podcasts on a good news story, and, and this might be as good as it gets at the moment. But don't fret too much about our, our poor billionaires. They're still $2 trillion better off than they were before the pandemic. What's driving this, and this is a bit I think we need to focus on, is the slide in the value of the tech companies that's really undermined particularly uh, US billionaire wealth. The decade-long tech bonanza, this huge boom in the value of companies, well, like Tesla being a most recent example, but Tesla or Facebook or Amazon or Microsoft or Alpha, Google's parent company, you can go through the list. That bonanza fueled by the lowest interest rates in human history and by quantitative easing by central banks, which I'll come back to. That's come grinding to a halt as interest rates have been jammed upwards by those central banks and as those same central banks try to flip quantitative easing into reverse. So in the years since 2008, with interest rates at all-time low and central banks like the Bank of England issuing billions of new pounds or dollars or euros or yen or whatever through quantitative easing, Money became very cheap and easy for those in a position to make investments. Major banks, hedge funds, wealthy individuals. Not necessarily URI, unfortunately, but we may have seen some impact on our borrowing costs if you were able to get a mortgage over this period of time. With interest rates so low, there was also a strong incentive to try and look for big returns. Uh, that it's no good scooping around to try and find your 1% or 2% return. You want to go for something much bigger than that, particularly if, for instance, you're running a pension fund and you have to pay out pensions somewhere down the line. And you'll look for those returns potentially regardless of how kind of daft these things might actually seem. That would include lots and lots of speculative investment in things like tech, uh, in saying, these companies are the future. This is what the future is going to look like. Don't you want to be part of the future? Let's go off and invest in it. Um, a major investment fund like SoftBank, uh, people who listen to uh, the Trash Future podcast, which I, I do recommend, will have followed the ups and downs, mostly downs recently, of SoftBank, this huge Japanese investment fund backed by now Saudi money. And it's hilarious and, and completely uh, bizarre set of investments it's made over the last few years, precisely tied into the story about tech being the future. Of course, these companies are worth a huge fortune because this is what the future looks like. That's the story behind uh, the drive in demand for these sorts of investments. That's the story behind the bubble. 
Now, when COVID struck, the surge in demand for online consumption that lockdowns produce, combined with the, the really colossal sums coming through quantitative easing, governments like, again, well, rather central banks like the Bank of England, like central banks across the world, really fired up quantitative easing to a huge extent uh, during 2020. That helped move more money into tech. Companies like Peloton, um, if people remember, it was, a, it was a sort of exercise bike you plugged into the internet. I think you can still buy them. Peloton surged in value over 2020 in the back of this. Uh, Peloton share prices have now fallen around 90% since that pandemic peak. All of this comes with a story that tech would forever change the world, that everything would now be radically transformed by big data, by what tech can do. Now, there is an element of truth to this. Uh, data technologies have become completely ubiquitous. You're probably listening to this podcast right now on some combination of you know, iPhone or some other recording and playback device connected to the internet. These things are absolutely everywhere in our lives. This world is different because of what's happened. And no doubt the presence of digital technologies in our lives will continue to grow. But those investments and that story attached to the investments and this bubble overstated the speed and the extent of the transformation. Now, COVID has had long-run impacts on how we live and work. There's more working from home now. There's huge, actually negative impacts around things like long COVID and our health impacts going into the future. But the sheer scale of tech bubble that took place over 2020 on top of the expansion that had been taking place in the years since 2008, that implied the transformation had to be even greater than what we actually saw happening or could really plausibly see happening into the future. Nor does tech necessarily produce economic growth. We've invested hugely, collectively, in various kinds of digital technologies now for many decades. But if you look at what's happened to economic growth over those same decades, it's fallen back compared to you know, decades past, go back to the 60s, go back to the 70s. The period of time before we had digital technologies was a period of time which growth in general, particularly in the Western uh, economies, was faster than it is now. The relationship between economic growth and digital technologies isn't particularly clear. So as the era of cheap money, so-called, it's not been especially cheap or accessible for, for many of us, comes to an end, so interest rates go up, quantitative easing starts to be pulled into reverse, the tech bubble has burst. Uh, the Nasdaq, the New York-based stock exchange, which is focused on, on tech stocks, has had its worst year since 2008, losing one-third of its total value. Leading tech slops have slumped. Um, Apple is down 27%. Amazon's share prices is down about 50%. And Facebook owner Meta is down 65% on the year. Now, there's an important corollary to this. The pattern of massive overinvestment in speculative bubbles, followed by the slump and the explosion of this bubble, is hardly unfamiliar in capitalism. Importantly, it's, it's kind of also how network technologies, like all these digital bits of kit we're all using, have often expanded in the past. So if you think about railway mania in Britain, the 1840s, which is massive speculative overinvestment in railways, a huge bubble that then bursts down the line when a whole load of these railways turn out to be unprofitable, force hundreds of companies into bankruptcy. But the result on the other side of this, as the dust sort of settles, is you actually get a national railway network. Or the original dot-com bubble in the late 1990s through to 2000, 2001 or so. It's massive overinvestment in this really sort of clunky, horrible net 1.0 technology. It's a huge bubble that bursts and collapses and there's bankruptcies all over the place and people lose lots of money. But out of the back of it, you get the backbone of the modern internet in the form of companies like Google and Amazon. Uh, Shoshana Zuboff's surveillance capitalism is a very nice positive account of how Google, in particular, adapted to those post-crash conditions. The bubble helped form the modern internet. That's how capitalism develops these network technologies. It's deeply inefficient and wasteful, but it's kind of how things work. 
What's striking this time is just how bad those new technologies are at producing economy-wide economic growth. They produce severe inequality very happily. We've seen this on a spectacular scale. It's why we have so many billionaires now. And good at producing companies with close ties to their respective governments. The big tech companies were starting to struggle before the pandemic with a combination of rising costs and falling user engagement. It's why Facebook in particular has lurched into the metaverse and before that was trying to launch its own cryptocurrency, a plans now largely abandoned. The parasitic nature of the technologies involved was brilliantly exposed when a, a small tweak by Apple to its security settings, requiring users to opt in to having their data shared across apps, meant Facebook lost $10 billion last year. So the future looks rockier for big tech than it might have seen a few years back. If I had to speculate, companies providing infrastructure in some form look better protected than those offering more immaterial products. So Apple, with its closed-world hardware offer, and Amazon via its cloud computing, would most likely be in a better place than Facebook or Twitter, for that matter. Most likely, what will really matter, as things get worse over the next year, is the proximity of big tech companies to government power, that we get a version of too big to fail. And if we're not quite on the verge of failure for a company like Facebook, or maybe not Twitter, but certainly Facebook, then at least access that government power and the ability to shape regulations and the ability to lobby and effectively push governments around, that's going to start to really define who survives the bursting of this bubble over, over the next few years or so. It's a gloomy uh, and not a particularly brilliant prospect. It's one where we say that we have potentially transformational technologies that could be put to good social use that are instead in the hands of people who essentially produce trinkets and speculate on the production of those trinkets. And then when the speculative bubble collapses, they hope to still be the only people standing. But this is the irrationality at the heart of technological progress under capitalism. It's the world we live with. And if we're going to make a big prediction for next year, I don't think that one's going to change anytime soon. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose. And finally, Macrodose is happy to be a partner of the Politics Theory Other podcasts. You can find our show, as well as many fantastic long-form interviews with Grace Blakely, Nancy Fraser, and many more, by searching Politics Theory Other wherever you get your podcasts.